Hey, everybody, welcome back to Choose Inclusion. This is Yubi, and I'm here with Mr. Michael Hess. How are you, Mike? Fantastic, my friend. Good, good. Well, welcome back. This, this is a continuation of our Black Voices Matter segment. And today uh, we've got a, a really great voice uh, out of Denver, Colorado. He's known as the Soul Food Scholar. He's also the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches. And so we're gonna talk about both of those kind of roles and, and, and how they relate to Black Lives Matter and the conversation that's happening around racism right now. So Adrian Miller, welcome, welcome to the show. And, and how are you doing? How are you feeling? Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, man, you know, it's mixed emotions. Um, these days I've been really thinking about kind of three things broadly. Um, so the first is I, I, what I've been telling people lately is I always think about my father. Um, my mother died a few years ago, but my father is uh, here with us and he's 80 years old, grew up in rural, rural Arkansas and uh, in the segregated South. And so um, I try to have dinner with him every Sunday night. And recently I asked him, you know, I, I just said, what do you think about what's going on? Do you think, how do you think this is gonna play out? And he said, you know, I really never thought it would get this bad after the civil rights legislation was passed. Um, and he grew up at a time where, you know, if you looked a white person in the eye, if you were a person of color and looked a white person in the eye, especially if you're black, you're asking for trouble. So uh, for him to kind of lose hope in that sense was really poignant for me. Um, and in this moment, I'm just trying to figure out what my role might be, um, because I do think I have some gifts that I can bring to the conversation, but part of it is just figuring out, uh, you know, let me back up. We've had these kind of moments in the past, and usually what happens is there's a lot of energy in the moment, then the starts to dissipate after a few months. This time feels different, and I'll say this because just what I've, from what I've observed, white people are looking at things in a different way and stuff that I never would have imagined would have happened, say like two months ago, or now these things are happening. For instance, Colorado, we passed a police accountability uh, piece of legislation in like a week and a half. That never would have happened before. Mississippi is now considering taking the Confederate flag out of their state flag. And I'm not sure if it's just something the governor can sign or if they can send it to voters. Um, so, but still the fact that that's even happening is just really tremendous. And then what I'm seeing that I really gives me encouragement is I'm seeing white people engage other white people on race. Because what I've told people is um, if I talk about my experiences with race and I've been blessed because I have had very few run-ins with the cops, but I've had them. And I know that my rights were being violated but I've never had a gun drawn on me like my friends have. Um, so to see other white people engaging their friends, family, and peers on race, I think is that's where we're going to get the real breakthrough. Because when I share things, I think people, because this, it's so outside their experience, they may discount it or dismiss it outright. And then I'll, I'll just uh, close out with saying that I also think about the words of Gianna Floyd, who was George Floyd's six-year-old daughter, who after his murder um, said, my daddy changed the world. And so the challenge for all of us of goodwill who want to see a shared future where we have equality for everyone is, can we make Gianna's words really come to fruition this time? Because uh, I thought we would be in this place right now, this moment, five years ago, when that guy went into that black church in Charleston and killed the Bible study group that had welcomed him. 
I thought that was so horrific that that would bring us to this moment, but it just never really happened. Um, but I think in this moment, the video of George Floyd being killed and how no excuses can be made, because I think in the past when other incidents like this have happened, even when caught on film, people have said, oh, well, he was breaking the law or he was resisting arrest or whatever. But the way that George Floyd was killed, um, there's just no excuses can be made for that. And it was horrific. And I think it's just touched people in a different way. I, um, Adrian, thank you for sharing those like, like that. And I, I'm an eternal optimist uh, and I, I really hope that George Floyd's daughter's words do, um, absolutely do come true. And I, I agree there's something different now because not only are white people, uh, you know, having this discussion, um, with, 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 with their inner circles, with their families, with everybody. Uh, but I also like, you have companies, you know, so for a, a, um, a cause to be sustained at the end of the day, what, how, how it lasts more than two or three months is, is based on resources. And you see, I, I mean, companies like Netflix and Google and, uh, I mean, really, really large mega companies like committing, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to black companies, to, uh, black lives matters, to, all of these organizations to help um, sustain this effort, because at the end of the day, you and I both know that that's what it's going to take for this to last more than the two or three months. Absolutely. And we're just seeing that and we're seeing it in, in so many different spaces. Um, and we're seeing African-Americans step up. I mean, LeBron James is coming up big time right now. I think he's pledging $100 million or something like that. So, um, yeah, it just feels different. What, what, um, so you, you, uh, you've written books on the history of black chefs in, in the White House. Um, you've also written books and, and you were just turning in edits on another book, but really looking at sort of African American food. And how, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on food and, and how? how it could maybe be, how can maybe help bridge some of these gaps between people, how, how it might be able to help drive change as well. Is that possible? Yeah, I believe so. I think food is just a powerful tool um, that can be used for good or, <laughs> or evil. And let me, let me just put it this way. So if you look at the story of say in a cuisine like soul food um, or just even African-American food in the Americas, uh, enslaved people were brought here to do uncompensated labor, and food was one of the tools of oppression in this sense is that um, on plantations or in, really in any kind of slavery context for the most part, uh, the, the slaveholder would control the amount of food that enslaved people got. So on the larger plantations, once a week, uh, the enslaved people would be given five pounds of some starch, could be cornmeal, rice, or sweet potatoes typically, two pounds of meat that was either smoked, salted, or dried. Uh, typically that was pork, but it could be beef or fish and a jug of molasses. And then otherwise the enslaved people had to figure out how to subsist by gardening, foraging, hunting, fishing, and doing all of these other things to supplement it. Um, during a typical day for an enslaved person is at the crack of dawn, uh, there would be a trough. People were fed out of a trough, just like animals. 
uh, filled with cornbread, uh, crumbled up cornbread and buttermilk. And people had to eat with their fingers or maybe a, clam a seafood shell, like a clam shell or a mussel shell, because a fork or a knife was a potential weapon. And uh, slaveholders did not want enslaved people to, to arm themselves. Then the midday meal was similar. The trough was cleaned out. And then in that midday uh, meal, there would be a trough full of seasonal vegetables, maybe a little bit of meat to season the vegetables. Uh, and then sub, uh, supper at the end of the day was leftovers from the midday meal. So that you just see how that uh, keeping people hungry, chronically hungry and using food uh, to oppress, you saw that as a tool for bad. And then even after emancipation, we see food being weaponized, um, very toxic, toxic stereotypes of African-Americans through food developed during that time period because African-Americans have been granted new rights given the amendments to the constitution and federal civil rights legislation that was passed in the 1870s. So at that moment in time in the 1870s, uh, African-Americans had a chance to be full participants in the society. And so uh, the people who had lost the civil war and still did not, were not interested in black progress decided to launch a culture war and essentially use food to say, oh, African-Americans are different, they're childlike, or they're bestial. And essentially the message was, hey, these people are inferior, they don't deserve these rights. And with that constant campaign that started in the South, but people outside the South were very happy to consume those stereotypes and even pass them on to others. Uh, you know, by, by the late 1890s, mid 1890s, we get Plessy v. Ferguson, which uh, basically in, legally enshrines segregation based on that Supreme Court decision. So we see that the cultural war was working. And a lot of the toxic foods were fried chicken, watermelon, catfish, barbecue. Uh, even to this day, I've got, I know some African-Americans who are very reluctant to eat fried chicken or watermelon in the presence of white people. And even today, if there's a Martin Luther King celebration or a Black History Month celebration that involves food and it has fried chicken or watermelon involved, even if it's organized by an African-American, um, other African-Americans will protest that event and usually they get canceled. Um, but I'd, I'd like to end on a hopeful note by saying that I think food has the power to reconcile us because we all eat, we can come to the table. And when you sit down to eat with somebody, you recognize their humanity. It's a time where people drop their guard and you, you can start to talk and just get to know each other. And also cooking is an act of love. I mean when somebody cooks for you, they're saying they care about your survival. They're saying that I love you. Even if the food is straight nasty, just the act of going through and preparing that food is meaningful. And I think if we can create spaces in our lives where we have that, you know, opportunities to just eat with each other, to listen and talk and hear each other, we might have a chance to work this out. Wow. Um... <laughs> So uh, the straight nasty. Apparently, you've uh, heard about my cooking, Adrian. So, uh, thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So um, the uh, I I couldn't agree more with. So I a I did not know. You know, I I honestly I I I don't I I don't know. I guess I didn't really know the stereotype about some of those foods. To be honest. Um, yeah. And, and, and B, I, I guess I didn't, again, that's what I love about this, this, this episode is, you know, uh, truly edu educating. And I didn't realize like that. So those foods could actually stop an event for, 
a, a Dr. King kind of event. That's just fascinating to me. I, I, I definitely agree though, that, uh, breaking bread with people is, I mean, it's as old as humanity and getting more people to the table to have discussions about this is the way it could be done. Can you, can you talk though about, you know, some of the, you know, uh, you know, I know you, you've got books on this, like, you know, what, what, you know, some of the foods that are, you know, uh, the, the black culture bring to America. And I'd, I'd love to know, you know, again, cause I, I, I don't know some of these things. I really, the, I didn't know watermelon. I didn't know, uh, uh, catfish. None of that. I, I truly didn't know that. I'd love to know some of the other rich, you know, black culture foods that, uh, we get to enjoy and, and we do enjoy. Oh man, do you feel like something's been missing in your life? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So an example of a food that comes from some foods that come from Africa, you talked about watermelon, which is like central Africa. An interesting thing about watermelon is it actually comes to the Americas via the Spanish before a large number of enslaved Africans arrived and it was embraced by Native Americans. So uh, watermelons were growing all over the place by the times that um, enslaved Africans arrived here. So much so that people thought it might've been native to the Americas. Um, another example is okra. Um, that's another food that shows up um, through via the slave trade. Uh, there was a type of sesame seed that came over. It was called bene seeds, but essentially it was sesame seeds. Uh, there's another thing called hibiscus. I don't know if you've ever had a hibiscus tea or not, but that's a flower that's native to West Africa. And that um, essentially was a hospitality drink in West Africa that called bisap, which essentially you just get some water, you steep the flowers in that water and then sweeten it to taste. Uh, that drink comes to the Caribbean and then makes it way around Latin America. So in the Caribbean, like especially Jamaica, it's called sorrel. And then when it makes its way around Latin America, it gets called Agua de Jamaica, which is Jamaica water. So when you go to a taqueria and order that drink, you're actually drinking a riff off a West African drink. Um, and then, you know, what we find in other aspects of kind of soul food and African American food culture is you find basically enslaved people coming to the Americas, not being able to eat all of the foods that they necessarily had back home because they were moving from a tropical climate to a temperate climate. So you just couldn't have grow the same foods. So often what they had to do was find substitutes. So one example is greens. Uh, in soul food culture, the popular greens are collard, kale, mustard, turnip, and cabbage. Well, these are all bitter greens. And the, the interesting connection is in West Africa, a lot of West Africans ate bitter greens. They called it bitter leaf. So they couldn't have bitter leaf in the Americas. So what they did is they substituted the European bitter greens that they had encountered. So I tell people, if you've discovered kale in the last five to 10 years, welcome to the party. We've been eating it for about 15. Um, and then some other uh, foods would be like sorghum and millet. So, but the rest of soul food is really embracing food already here in the Americas or adopting the foods of their European slaveholders. And so soul food is really one of the earliest fusion cuisines in the US. Well, and, and it just, I, I am just completely fascinated by this, this conversation of the weaponization of this food. And I mean, it, it speaks to 
just truly how embedded and systemic everything is. And that's why I love this conversation because I, I want I want white people in particular to understand that. And they've, but in order to do that, they've got to see everywhere that it's systemic, right? That it's embedded and, and it's, and it's food. It's, you know, it's every policy and procedure at work. It's, um, you know, it, it's rent mortgages, right? That the socioeconomic ways that this is just um, held an entire community of people back purposely right yeah so one of the fascinating things that's happening right now is that a lot of those stories and underpinnings are being peeled away and people are starting to understand that they're starting to understand how policing um not rooted entirely but definitely influenced by these volunteer white slave patrols that would just go in the south operate in the south looking for fugitive enslaved people they were called patter rollers um, uh, we don't know that how much, uh, tipping, which is a way of not paying somebody a full wage was influenced by, uh, the number of African-American waiters. So, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see how much race really permeates our society in a way that just people just really didn't even know. Uh, and let me give you one anecdote. Um, recently one, something that's been in the news has been the Tulsa riots of the night of 1920. Um, mm -hmm. where an entire community was destroyed. So I have two friends who are from Tulsa. One is a woman in her mid-60s. The other is a, a guy in his uh, early 30s. Both of them have, before they came to Denver, they spent a lot of their life in Tulsa, grew up there. They had never even heard of those riots. Well, and a lot of people heard about it because of the, the show Watchmen, right, on HBO? Yeah, the show Watchmen and also President Trump's uh, rally there. Uh, right. When people were giving wow. context to that, that's when they started to learn about it. Um, so, you know, most people in the country didn't know about that, but people in, even in that community didn't know about it. So that shows you what I, uh, David Shipler, an author, wrote this term, but I really love it. It just speaks to how we are a nation of familiar strangers. Um, we know of each other, but we really don't know each other's stories. And I think part of this moment and why people are trying, trying to find out more about racism and systemic racism and other things is I think they're trying to, for a moment, in this moment, they're trying to find out more about the African-American story. I, and I think, I, oh yeah, go ahead, Mike. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I'm fascinated with uh, this conversation and with you, Adrian, uh, on this topic. Thank you. I was, I was gonna ask if we could, um, shift gears because you uh besides being a, an acclaimed author and attorney at law and all like so many other uh you've also got a really cool venture that you're doing right now that um uh is is you know creating social impact by doing something else that quite honestly is 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 maybe not unheard of but super rare um here in Colorado can you talk more about your you know the uh your your social impact and, and faith? Yeah, so there is a food connection because at least in the Christian church, the early church was actually potluck meals at people's homes. That's how the early Christians really got together and start to build the church. Um, so that's a little just fun fact. But uh, yeah, I'm the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches and we represent 13 Christian denominations, 
mostly the mainline Protestant denominations. And um, so we were, we're a coalition of about 800 churches across the state. And uh, if you've never heard of the Colorado, Colorado Council of Churches, we're the ones who host the Easter sunrise service at Red Rocks, which is now is going into its 74th year. So oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definite fixture of our community, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I've been really interested in is um, like, how do we come together? And my, my observation in our society is we have fewer and fewer spaces where we can come together and talk about the tough things. And faith, churches, churches, synagogues, mosques, um, they're one of the few spaces left. So one of my passions has been trying to get the faith community together to talk about race. And one of the most successful events I did that through was a giant potluck, where basically I asked people to bring food from their own faith tradition and sit down at the, uh, in the space, the venue that we had, sit down with somebody you don't know and just talk to them. And at the end of the conversation, see if it's possible for you to uh, maybe do something ongoing with a diverse church. So before going into that, black pastors were very cynical. They just said, look, Adrian, we've seen this movie before. These white churches, they don't want to do the work of um, reconciliation. They just want us to come and preach uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend and check off a box. And, I, and just by pure coincidence, this was, um, I had this in the works just around the time of that church shooting that I mentioned earlier. And I said, no, I just think we're in a different moment because of everything that's happening in our society. And they said, okay, we'll see. Uh, sure enough, we had like 200 people show up, very great event. We all, out of all those people that showed up, we really only had three churches that kind of committed to, to doing some ongoing relationship building. And uh, about three weeks later, I checked in with the white pastor of one of those pairings. And she said, you know, um, we're doing some stuff, but my congregants are asking me, why do we keep doing stuff with that black church? Which fed completely into what the black pastors were saying. Um, the other thing is I can tell you, there are, there are pastors who do wanna talk about race, but they're, they're hindered because one, um, there are people in their pews that just don't wanna hear it. They wanna be in a safe space. They wanna live in a bubble. They want to just not talk about race, um, even though the person they profess to follow, and I'm talking about Christians, talked about social justice and loving everyone. They just don't want to be bothered with that. Anecdotally, I know some faith leaders that when they preach Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, people get up and leave. Now, you know what a breach of protocol that is. Um, I know other people that uh, have tried, there's a church in Denver that has Black Lives Matter matters on its marquee. It routinely gets vandalized. So people are coming on the church property and destroying a marquee just because they don't wanna see that, uh, that wording. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, there are people that, read, that uh, threaten to withhold donating to the church and there are people who actually don't stop donating to the church if they think that the, the faith leader, the pastor is way out there on race. So, my experiences are with the Christian church, but it's very disheartening. And I can tell you as the leader of the Colorado Council of Churches, I have an email newsletter distribution list. Whenever I do an email that explicitly talks about something dealing with race, especially racial justice, I automatically get unsubscriptions. It's just, it's just gonna happen. So um, there were really two surprises from that. My first surprise was, wow, I didn't know people read my emails. 
And then the second surprise is, wow, we're Christians. We're supposed to love one another. And we can't even just handle hearing about an event that's going to talk about race. That's, that's too much to handle. Kind of like, what's up with that? So um, again, this time is different. I, ha I have a number of white churches who are reaching out to me and saying, hey, we want to do a curriculum on race and, and you know, a lot of different things. So this may be, be a different moment. We'll just have to see how it plays out. I think, yeah, what I, what I, it just, it speaks to how this maybe is such an individual fight, you know, like I think if we're ever really going to see change, I feel like there's got to be a lot of individual work that everybody has to do because it, it, you can have different people of the same faith, for example, but if those people who are refusing to donate and, and, who are upset by a Black Lives Matter banner on their church, like that, I don't know, that's a, that's a, that to me is a very personal individual fight. And I think that's, that's, it's like, it's, it's a spectrum, I guess, is what I'm seeing. It's like, we've got to fight it at that level, as well as, you know, where you've got these big companies and these big brand names and these very influential things who also have to take a stand, right? If we're going to see this change happen. Right. So, you know, one question is, well, what turns on a light bulb for a person to do that personal work? You know, what, what leads a person to do that? I don't have a great answer for that. Um, next, second question is, what motivates a person to go into a space to discuss this, this issue with other people, knowing that they may be seen as the bad person simply because of their skin color, which is, you know, messed up? Um, or they may fear that they're going to say the wrong thing. So I think I think the um, the lack of safe spaces to talk about race is actually hindering some of these discussions because I think people are just reluctant to go into those spaces because you got to be a special kind of cat to walk into a, a space like that. Well, I I agree. You, well, maybe may a special kind of cat, but but I also like. So what, what, what is the, uh, what's, what's the, what's the own beating in your own heart again? Like, so uh, whatever impact small that you can have. So again, Nina and Ubaldo and myself, like leveraging a, a, a small platform of, of, you know, this podcast to talk about this and, and, and special cat or not. And I, I, <laughs> Uh, Ubaldo, yes, Nina, yes, me, whatever. I'm, I'm, it's, it's about saying, okay, um, it's 2020, ladies and gentlemen, right? Or however you'd identify, but it is 2020. Can, can we, like, <laughs> our, our, our world is, is, is diverse, okay? Inclusion is something that's got to be intentional. And in, and in places like churches, and that infuriates me to no end to think that, you know, you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like they, they call him the ult ultimate teacher in the Christian in, in the Christian faith. Right. And I just I you know, I'd love to know, you know, and I'm not a biblical scholar, but I, I, I'd love to know. <laughs> well, first, first and foremost, that ultimate teacher was not Caucasian. OK, he was from, he was from a part of the world where he wasn't a white guy. OK, so can we can we, you know, historically <laughs> start talking about that? 
And, and, so, and then, but, but where, where does he, is, is there somewhere in the Bible? Please tell me, Adrian, that, that's, that we, we talk, he talks about black people in a way that is demeaning. Is it, is that, is that the, what the great teacher did? Is that why so many white churches can't talk about this? Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I'm fascinated. Well, actually, it's, it's an interesting question. So Jesus, so the, the, the one thing is we have to separate kind of what Jesus says in the Bible and the rest of the Bible. Because if you just look at what Jesus talks about, um, a lot of Christians are paying attention to things that he either said very little about or he didn't even talk about at all. But other parts of the Bible speak to those issues. So that's one thing. But yes, there, there have been, um, in order to justify the enslavement of Africans, Parts of the Bible have been used to um, have been quoted in order to justify uh, the mistreatment of Africans. So um, there's a part in the Bible and it talks about Noah and stuff, but basically the sons of Ham were supposed to have this uh, kind of mark of inferiority. And so people have read into that, that that meant black people. So there, yes, the Bible has been used in that way, but it's really a misinterpretation. And it's just, it's wow. just misinterpretation. So, you know, so the question about the white church and, and you know, um, let me back up. Martin Luther King Jr. said 50 years ago that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. And what he was yeah, talking about that. church houses of worship right now. I am part of the problem, so to speak, because I choose to go to an all black church. Because I love the black worship style. Yeah, I just love it. So am I racist for that? You know, that I think, I don't think so, but that's a question, right? Um, so um, spring forward to today's context, there really has to be an ongoing discussion. And we're seeing this more in evangelical circles. Um, is like, well, what are we, who are we worshiping? Are we worshiping God? Are we worshiping white supremacy? Are we worshiping the God of tranquility? So the God in that in that latter context, I'm saying like we don't want to raise issues in our church and divide the congregation because they're just too hard, and people are going to leave. Um, what I'm telling faith leaders of all, you know, of anybody who asks me, I'm like, look, your churches are emptying and getting older because young people are looking at you. They see you're not speaking to the issues of the day, and so they're just fighting this fight elsewhere. That's why they're forming meetup groups or doing stuff on social media. And if you were just to respond to the issues of the day as Jesus did in his time, and if you just follow what Jesus says, care for the sick, the hungry, the imprisoned, you know, love one another, maybe people would be start coming to your house of worship. So, you know, these, quest these questions have to be made. And I'm, I know some people may think that I'm speaking out of shop too much, but it, I love the church. The church has been a very positive influence in my life, but I know that's not been the case for everyone. And I know that church and Christians have done a lot of damage to people. Um, so as a Christian of goodwill, I'm trying to let people know there are some of us out there who do want to love everyone and bring us together. We just need help. Wow. What a uh, thank you for thank you for coming on and hearing hearing your voice. Uh, I've I've learned I've I've learned a lot today uh, from you, Adrian. From from food to religion, my friend. What a what a fascinating talk. Thank you so much. Then thank again. Thanks for the opportunity to just kind of share my thoughts on this.
Yeah, this is this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, everybody, you know, continue to check out chooseinclusion.com. Um, we've got some really great voices that are continuing um, to join us and, and you know share. Uh, you know, so thank you for trusting us for that. Um, check the website, Mike. Thank you, Adrian. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This has been amazing. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you, Baldwin. All right, peace. Always. Take care. Bye-bye.